mean, I don't know. There's no point in doing this if we're not going to have a little bit of fun. Like, exactly. We could tell a really serious story about Russia and not have any of that, and it wouldn't be nearly as fun. But, yeah, I like to try to throw in jokes just because some of these topics can get so goddamn depressing. Yeah. It's just like... Uh, well, we like, feel need- free to jump in like anytime because that'll definitely spice it up a little bit. So We need someone funny. Yeah. So we can't rely on Mike. Dude, I'm not funny or creative on a consistent basis unless I get really amped up about something or I have something prepared ahead of time. But I have one funny thing that I kind of wanted to mention before we even get started. I don't know if you guys have seen any like the recent Instagram drama and how much like I just fucking love Instagram drama. I live for this shit, but I'm so glad I stayed the well the fuck out of it. I'm not involved in any of that shit. Well, I mean, you either are a pet stock or you're not, but like, so that's what's like currently going on. And so fucking labor wave designs, who's going to come on the show? And uh, he's going to, like, defend Passock. It's going to be him and, I guess, whoever he chooses, and then me and Rick from Decolonized Buffalo arguing against the Passock. And uh, I feel like we're going we're gonna to body him. <laughs> it's just like, I, I keep reposting shit, Rick shit to my story because he's just demolishing, like, the whole concept of it. It's fucking awesome. Oh, he's fantastic, dude. But so part of that drama was that just out of nowhere, like, Labor Wave decides to say that I'm, like, a big NATO and, like, Azov shill, and I'm like, where is this coming from? And, like, he's, like, restricting my comments and, like, was talking to me in DMs. I'm like, okay, so this is really some delusional shit considering we have, like, an entire podcast episode that literally gets us called fucking simps for Putin. Yeah, and, like, before all this went down, would, like, send me messages and replies to my stories, like, hey, can I get this video? Like, yo, like, fucking sick-ass posts on all my, like, anti-Ukraine shit. Right. So it's, like, it's really out of nowhere, and I didn't understand it, and then... Sort of in the comments, he's implying that it's kind of just a bit, and it's all like a big joke. And I'm like, okay, cool. But like, that kind of just seems like you're taking a position and then backing away from it. And then when challenged on it, like you just resort to like throwing out some troll shit. And it's like, okay, I mean, if that's what you want to do, but fine. But then still, like, he's going to come on the show. And I'm going to nail him on this whole fucking anti LGBT shit because that's where it really yeah. comes down for me. It's like, I and I told him in DMs, I could screenshot him if people really need, but like, if you want to do a bit, and you want to, like, accuse me of some wacky shit, cool, we can do a bit. Like, let me know ahead of time. Let me be in on it or something. Like, I don't know what the fuck's well, going on. Well, didn't he but... call you a groomer? Well, I mean, that's what they, some shit that's like, like that. what they do. But then he, he backs away from that. But, like, you know, that's the whole fucking thing that everyone on the right who insists that they're not, like, a... Literally just a reactionary talking point. Like, stop. Yep. Stop. And, or, and stop pretending you're on the left, then, if you're going to just pull up, like, fucking reactionary bullshit. Yeah. But the whole point of me even bringing this up was just that then... It's odd that I posted a link in my stories to our episode on the Russia and Ukraine conflict. Yeah. But I noticed that for some reason we still got 419 plays on our most recent episode with you titled The Russian Intervention. So I think that people were mistakenly thinking that we are pro NATO, pro Azov or whatever, went to the last episode we released, which is like a month ago at this point, and we got an extra bump of like about 420 yeah. plays from Labor Wave. So thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Hopefully that, you're here for part two. Yeah, right. <laughs> As I say, with that, should we just get into it? Put that in there. Communists are amazing.
All right. So uh, welcome back to The Intervention, uh, your favorite podcast about British and American imperialism. And we're back tonight with Mike and Ward from Turn Leftist uh, for part two of our series on the Russian intervention or the U.S. and allied intervention into Russia in 1918. So we can be explicitly clear about that. Um, Mike, Ward, do you guys want to introduce yourselves and again, give a little bit more on uh, Turn Leftist? How's it going? Yeah, I'm Mike, he, him from Turn Leftist. Hey, I'm Ward, he, him from Turn Leftist, Instagram at Millennial Leftist. I don't get in arguments like Mike does, so may not have heard of me. <laughs> Why not, bro? It's so much fun. Yeah, but that's what we do. We have a uh, Marxist podcast and we get into arguments on Instagram. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, like, I think I live vicariously through you guys online because I just end up reposting a lot of your shit and I don't like actually create my own and get into, the, uh, get into a lot of the nonsense. And Steve's not online at all, really. <laughs> yeah, I try and avoid it. Probably the wise choice. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, so um, as always, I'm Nick. Um, I'll be the main host tonight um, with Steve. And again, we're going to go through part two of our story on the U.S. intervention into Russia in 1918. So I figure we could start just by summarizing how part one went just to get everybody caught up. So we basically described how the Bolsheviks came to power in the wake of World War One. And of course, the formation of a domestic and international reaction to the world's first successful socialist revolution. The Bolsheviks had remained committed to their long-held anti-war position and support for the Soviets or the Workers' Councils. And when the provisional Kerensky government was on its heels, they had pressed their advantage and claimed power for the proletariat. We also discussed the chaotic state of 1917 Russia and Central to Part 1 was the presence of the Czechoslovak Legion, which was that 70,000-man fighting force kind of stranded in Siberia. The Legion had managed to assert control over a vast swath of the Trans-Siberian Railway, insert trans trans joke um, as they made their way to Vladivostok, the eastern terminus of the uh, of the railway, you know, on the Pacific Ocean nearby to Manchuria and the Korean Peninsula. And this was critical because the allies, France, Britain, Japan and the U.S. were able to justify the decision to intervene in, in Siberia, in part on the basis of protecting the legion and by extension, the railway. Now, as we also discussed, this, this intervention was about much more than helping the Czechoslovaks depart Russia and ultimately join the allies in France economic interests in Russia by the allies were at stake, and the railway itself was the jugular vein of Siberia in terms of access, extraction, and transportation of people and goods. So integral to this is the fear of the imperialists of the Bolsheviks and the new political economic system they threatened to demonstrate to the world. Naturally, the allies ended up in a position supporting and arming the brutal reactionaries that made up the White Army. And so as we wrapped up, we had kind of described Admiral Kolchak's rise to the position of supreme leader of the Russian state or the fake Russian, Russian state and some of the atrocities committed by the whites in Siberia as our functional narrator, General Graves, the commander of the U.S. forces, brought us to the signing of the Inter-Allied Railroad Agreement. So that was kind of the part one summary. Anything else to add to that before we launch into part two? Don't forget that we learned what, what was the word for a whip that they had? There's a scourge, not yeah. The scourge and now the main mechanism for recruiting peasants into the white army. So simple yet effective, right? So with that, we come to uh, March 1919 when the anti-Bolshevik forces in Siberia received word that an agreement between the Allies had been reached regarding the operation of the railway in Siberia. So again, this is just more neutral intervention, doing neutral intervention things like deciding how one of the most important pieces of infrastructure in a country will be operated. I mean, without the input of like the vast majority of the people, right? So Graves thought this, you know, so important that he basically summarized, or he actually included the entire thing in the report that he put out. 
But there's really five key points. The first one being that supervision of the railway within occupied territory was to be governed by an inter-allied committee. So basically representatives from, you know, the white Russians, France, um, Britain, the U.S. and Japan. And each country was going to have a representative on this committee, but the chairman had to be Russian. And this chairman was going to be responsible for appointing all of the clerical staff to actually run the railway. So point two, um, the technical board was formed to administer technical and economic management of the railways. Three, a military transportation board was formed to coordinate the movement of troops and equipment. Four, allied forces were confirmed in their responsibility of protecting the railway, and each railway would be headed by a Russian manager with, quote, powers conferred by existing Russian law. And five, that this arrangement essentially is going to be, it's going to cease to be operative if the allies leave Siberia. So I think we should talk about that, right, in the context of the allies propping up the white Russians, right? So we talked about Kolchak last time. So any guesses as to who took up the position of the chairman of the inter-allied railroad committee that had to be a Russian? Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you three guesses and the first two don't count. Right. <laughs> so obviously Kolchak jumps on this opportunity, right? And then that also gave him powers to essentially appoint, you know, people to key positions that were t- managing things like technical issues with the railway economic distribution and military transport, right? So he got to appoint basically all of his cronies to all of these positions, and it was all kind of facilitated through an agreement that the allies came to. One in four, I mean, it's, it's very similar to what we've talked about with Britain and like, you know, Amritsar and, and other, when you look at other places where Britain's been, they nominate these like figureheads or, you know, collaborators to make them feel like they're a part of the system when really it's still... You know, the, the allies were, I'm, I'm sure, had the most power, but, you know, it, it, to make them feel involved and just to get, you know, some sympathy to their cause, I guess. But it, it's very similar to like the British model. Yeah. Like father, like son, you'd say. Is, I mean, and that's something we try to do a lot is like we try to tease out the connections between, oh, like the U.S. learned this from Britain, probably. Right. And this is how they developed their imperial tactics and shit like that. So it's all part of the same long story. Um. But anyway, uh, we get a quote from Graves um, at the result of like the details of this report being released. And he basically says that, quote, if it were the intention of the framers of this agreement that the anti-Bolsheviks should have complete control and that the railway should be run exclusively for the Kolchak adherents, then the agreement proved a success, end quote. He also notes that despite U.S. proclamations with respect to restoring the railways and maintaining them for public use, the majority of the people in Siberia could make no use of the railway for travel and goods. He uh, gives us a little line there and he says the railroads at this point had essentially the same value to the people in Siberia as they did to the people in Liberia. So a little little joke from uh, Admiral Gra- or uh, Commander Graves there. It's <laughs> like a dad joke. Yeah. No. <laughs> so anyway, the allies under one of the provisions in a Graves suggestion end up carving the railway up into different sections to guard. So essentially they look at this vast swath of, you know, railroad track and they say, OK, Americans, you're going to take this sector to guard Japan. You take this and et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and, but he also noted with some acidity that despite the French and Steve, this goes to your point, but the French and British apparently had like a lot to say about how they should do it, but they didn't have any people to actually guard it. Like, again, it was mostly like officials and officers there trying to kind of control the situation from the French and British side. But like, despite all of the recommendations that they give, they actually couldn't do anything. And Graves was like, you know, they should tell, they could tell us how every mile should be guarded without actually doing any of it on their own. 
I, I just looked at like what Britain was involved in in 1919, just to, as like, because I think in 1917, there'd been like a crisis because they didn't have enough troops to support the Western Front at one point. But just in 1919 alone, like Britain fought in Ireland, Egypt, India, Malta, British Honduras, which is now Belize, I believe, and Trinidad. So they were, you know, I'm sure they would argue they were stretched pretty thin. But yeah, we always have opinions, but we're not always that helpful. Sounds like us right now all over the place, right? Yeah. But anyway, um, so just to that point, General Knox recommended to, uh, and General Knox, uh, just to remind everyone, was basically the commanding officer of the small British contingent that was in Siberia at the time. But he recommended that the Allied forces not permit any Bolsheviks within 10 kilometers of the railway. Now, you know, we recall back to last time Graves was trying to play neutral, so he refused to do this. And, you know, there were clashes inevitably because like he still took, you know, seriously this idea of like, I need to guard the railway. And like he was just put in a position where he was just pitting against Bolsheviks or, you know, anybody that was resistant. And we'll get into this later. Anybody that was resistant to Kolchak because... Yeah, at this point, we kind of talked about it. It's such a huge area. There's a lot of people that they're pissing off and they're not necessarily all entirely unified under the banner of like the Bolsheviks and the Red Army even at that point. Right. So there's just normal Russians that they end up kind of having to confront at some point just by the nature of this agreement. So but anyway, this leads to clashes, you know, again, with Russians, you know, outside of the white Russian army and also just within kind of like this tenuous allied formation here. So I think there's a couple instances that we can just talk about that kind of just expose the contradictions in the U.S. position. Um, in one instance in particular, a United States colonel was confronted by our Cossack pal Semyonov. We talked about him a lot in part one. He was that brutal guy that was just destroying villages and shit like that all over the place. Um, but Semyonov, this guy apparently comes into like an American sector of the railway and he was started arresting railway workers, alleging that they were Bolsheviks. So this colonel, you know, he approaches this Cossack and he tells him that you're going to have to present proof of these accusations before you, you know, make any arrests in this sector. And Semyonov responds by basically telling him to pound stand. This was Russia and he's not going to take orders from an American. And I don't know, this was kind of like a Chad moment in one of the few like good American moments that we get. Um, but this guy, this colonel goes, if you come back through here with your armored car, I'm going to blow you to perdition. Quote unquote. I was going to say we should look up the Russian for pound sand. That might be funny. Yeah. I don't know if I could pronounce it, honestly. I know, right? <laughs> but uh, no, I was just like, you know, because you, you, we're talking like 1920s. So it's like, I don't know. I just picture like that old cartoonish voice of like an American, like, you'll get blown to perdition, see? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seemed to be a word they used to use a lot more yeah. back then. I don't really hear it so much now. That was kind of cool that they basically told this um, Cossack to fuck off in this you know, particular instance. Um, so then the guy, he, the Cossack doesn't, you know, he decides not to call the bluff. Um, so that's kind of cool. But um, on the other hand, there was a Japanese sector and Semyonov stopped a U.S. rail car loaded with thousands of rifles for Kolchak and procured them for himself. So, you know, at the same time, they have this moment where they're telling him to fuck off while they're shipping weapons to, you know, the commander of the forces that this guy is ostensibly a part of. Right. Yeah. So. It's a really confusing situation because, again, the Semyonov does fall under, like, the broad umbrella of, like, the white army. But we talked about this last time. He was, like, first and foremost, at least as Graves described it, like, on the payroll of the Japanese who were there to, you know, continue to create or, you know, just sustain destabilization in the region for, you know, their own interests as well. So pretty complicated. But, yeah, it's just, you know, just to highlight some of the contradictions and what they were you know what they were supposed to do be doing like guard this railway 
neutrally while supporting this situation. It is crazy how complicated it gets once you actually start looking at like material interests of all these people involved and see who they're supporting, what they're actually doing. I was thinking about this earlier, reading the notes about Graves himself. He effectively did a lot of, I guess you'd call it anti-imperialist resistance, fucking up the U.S.'s efforts in Siberia and everything just by his refusal to do heinous shit or just like to endorse some really heinous shit. Not because he was like any kind of Marxist or anything, but just because of, I'm not even going to say idealism, but like just the material reality of not wanting to be a part of that. And it, it's funny how if you just have any kind of principles, you can end up looking a lot like a Marxist in your actions. And uh, yeah, it's just funny to me, yeah. like you were saying earlier about all the different groups that were sort of loosely aligned against the whites, not necessarily reds, but still their material conditions aligned with it. And that will always continue to prop up is like, as long as these people keep squeezing, as long as the imperialists keep trying to trot over everyone, that's going to be the reaction every time. Just naturally, none of them had to read any theory. <laughs> they couldn't read. Yeah, it turns out people get radicalized when you uh, fuck them over and kill them and, you know, starve them and shit like that. So in, in any case, you know, to, to that point about Graves, like he tried to let it be known pretty broadly to like the Russian people, like the normal Russians, through statements that he actually had written up and posted in Russian that he, you know, for his part, would seek to assist all Russians, irrespective of nationality, religion or politics to make use of the railway. You know, he knew this was an impossible task, but like he was hell bent on trying to at least maintain consistency with his stated position, even if that meant backlash and the backlash came in this. And this comes to, you know, again, even contradictions within the U.S. institutions, right? So DeWitt Poole, who was the head of the Russian division of the State Department, like he loses his mind because the whites had not been distinguished from the reds within Graves' statements, right? Um, General Knox actually went as far as to go straight to the U.S. War Department and, you know, tried to get Graves relieved of his command because of his refusal to fall in line with the British policy of openly supporting Kolchak. And Graves kind of notes again with some... Uh, with some anger that if the roles had been reversed and um, if he had gone to like the British high command about getting General Knox removed, um, they would have taken taken serious, serious offense to that. And of course, the Japanese were continuing to openly fund the Cossacks as they you know, murdered si Siberian peasants. So it's just kind of a mess on all sides, even within the then the allied position here. Right. No, I mean, you're definitely right with that point about Britain. You know, there's this image of the, you know, and I, it was definitely true back then of like this gentleman soldier, you know, most officers were pretty highly educated, um, probably went to what we call public schools, what we in the US you'd call private schools. And uh, yeah, it would be like, you know, hierarchy and honor and all this bullshit are, are very important to them. So that it definitely would have been a big insult. For sure. Pretty funny. Yes. Yeah. It was just like reading about it. He was like, if I had done this, they would have, you know, they would have taken such offense. It was really funny. But, uh, you know, as he's continuing to talk about this railway situation specifically, he's always trying to reconcile the conflicts within the U.S. agencies in particular. And like he again kind of surmises that the intervention was purpose solely, at least at this point, because we mentioned last time that the, you know, the protection of the checks to try to get them back to France to fight on the uh, on that front was just bullshit. Right. So, you know, he's just he, it's fun to read it because he's continually coming closer and closer to this conclusion that it's really only intended at this point to check the spread of communism in the far east right um not not just not just siberia but beyond um and he also i think you know he does give a little bit of cover to the agents of the u.s state department musing that they were essentially moved from a policy of non-interference via the influence of the allies and for, of their allies and former officials 
So I think this is really generous to the Vipers that were in the State Department. But we do get kind of a class analysis, which backs up what I said, because as he's, as he's just trying to grapple with this, he says, quote, it is, in my judgment, unfortunate that the U.S. had at this time men handling Russian affairs who had previous governmental service in the Far East or Near East, or especially in Russia. These men had contacts with informed friendships among the class with whom they associated. And if Russians, they were universally pro-Czarist. So he's saying, right, like, we shouldn't have these people who have, you know, basically allegiances. It sounds like along class lines here kind of running affairs because they already know these people and they're friends with them. Right. They're, these are the rich monarchists and czarists. So, of course, these people are going to try to, you know, move, move things in that direction. Yeah, I mean, it seems like an obvious conflict of interest, but if that's what you're looking for. So anyway, he uh, he then goes on to um, reiterate that because of the actions of the State Department agents, including Consul General Harris, who we mentioned last, mentioned last time, to Whitpool and Consul McGowan, who was located in the uh, city of Irkutsk. The Russian people are justified in calling out the bullshit of non-interference claims. Following the armistice, the only logical reason for keeping troops in Siberia and setting up an agreement to ensure Kolchak would basically dominate the railway had been to check Bolshevism. As Graves puts it, quote, American soldiers could not have taken part in the horrors of the civil war in Siberia, but by their presence and by guarding the railroad, they contributed to the atrocities which shocked all people with normal sensibilities. So again, like I'm repeating myself over and over again, but it's fun to track his progress. And this will be interesting because another vehicle of support of the whites that Graves talks about comes from kind of an interesting place, but it's probably not going to surprise you guys at all. But Graves notes that as part of this intervention, a number of like NGOs and charities were present as part of, again, this overall U.S. presence. Um, some of these, he says, such as the YMCA, um, actually carried out work that benefited the Russian people broadly. He said those that did that, they avoided essentially working through white government channels and went direct to the people, regardless of that group of people's politics. And of course, the YMCA was charged with improper and unethical behavior by the whites and, you know, the uh, pro-white Americans. But then on the other hand, he notes that the American Red Cross worked explicitly to aid and supply Kolchak's forces. They didn't help any of the peasants or anything like that. They were solely there to assist the, uh, the czarist army. So the, the Red Cross essentially served as kind of like the avenue to manage military hospitals, supply clothing and medicine to the whites while ignoring the peasants entirely. At the time, the Red Cross was led by a guy named Dr. Rudolf Tusler, who was the cousin of First Lady Edith Wilson. While the YMCA was kind of put on blast for being unethical, Tusler would be awarded the Russian Medal of St. Vladimir for his valiant efforts to assist the uh, white Russians. So. The NGO industrial complex, right? <laughs> I was trying to think of some cross between Radio Free Russia and the Red Cross because it's obviously like just operating on behalf of U.S. intelligence, if not even clandestinely, but just de facto. Yeah, Red Cross and organizations like that, they're just like, no matter how overt we may see them, it's just another like insulating layer for people to be like, oh, well, it's not exactly us, you know what I mean? Just like another layer to assign blame to instead of admitting to our issues. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, it's called the American Red Cross. It's just presumed to be like this good natured philanthropic endeavor. Right. So it's like, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people would ever even think to question what the American Red Cross might have been doing in Russia in 1919, you know, 1918 or 1919. You know what I mean? But it's, 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 it's the same institution, right? Like this shit continues on. So. It's just, it's like, Mike, you said last time, it's the same shit over and over again. It, it is, you know, 
like you're saying the continuation of the same institutions like the red cross and everything like yeah when did the red cross stop being representative of the u.s state just like when did the washington post stop being an outlet for the fucking cia like there's no discontinuation of these things but you have everyone sort of behaving as if that's the case i don't know yeah frustrating but anyway, so despite all of this allied support, you know, coming in all these di- different directions and, you know, complete domination of the railway, um, it was starting to become clear that by mid-1919, the tide was actually beginning to turn a bit. And the Bolsheviks and anti-Kolchak forces, even more broadly, like we talked about, were beginning to get organized. Um, Kolchak had had some success in building um, a white army, but, you know, as we said, it was extremely unstable. This had a great deal to do with Kolchak's tactic of recruitment by whip and scourge. Um, Reports continued to pour in from U.S. guarded sections of men, women and children being mercilessly murdered and tortured by the whites. And these peasants drafted through pain and fear of the white army soon began deserting and taking their talents to the Reds. Graves tells us that, quote, as soon as they were armed and equipped, they deserted by regiments, battalions, and individually to the Bolsheviks. Peasants and working class do not desire to fight for the Kolchak government. End quote. In a delicious twist, the material aid supplied to arm and equip the peasants supplied by the Allies as they were being rounded up to fight the Bolsheviks would soon, would soon start being used against the White Army. So it's just as a quick example, most of the uniforms that these peasants were wearing within the Kolchak Army had been supplied by the British, and soon the Whites were fighting against Bolsheviks in British uniforms. And in fact, the Bolsheviks would later cable General Knox to thank him for his material and uh, his support for the cause. Hysterical. I love that shit. Very nice. Awesome. I thought that was so awesome. But, you know, I think it might be a good time just to kind of turn to the Bolshevik perspective a little bit. You know, we've been focusing, obviously, on the American side of things here. But I think it helps to kind of contextualize just how insane the situation was, especially early on um, for the Red Army at the beginning. Right. Because. They're essentially fighting a forefront war, right, against the entire world. Well, at least the entire imperialist world, right? So like I said, we're focusing on Siberia, but we need to keep in mind that there was an extensive white army force in the Transcaucasus region led by white officers, Denikin and Wrangel. And, you know, that's obviously south of Moscow to the north. And we mentioned this last time the Bolsheviks faced an allied insurgency at the port of Archangel. And this is where actually bloody conflict broke out between the so-called American polar polar bear expedition and the Red Army. And to the West, you know, the Reds faced a force led mainly by Balkan Germans who would go on to launch a full scale assault on Petrograd in the fall of 1919. So like all this to say is like that they were able to fight all this shit off was pretty astounding. Right. So, you know, they had working men and women alike taking up arms in defense of like various cities. And, you know, they held on despite numerous early setbacks. Even former czarist officers joined the Red Army to help organize and lead the new lead this new army, but trust in them was rightfully limited. I think that was actually a uh, a Trotsky decision, which was kind of questioned by a lot of people to bring in like these old czarist officers from the old army to lead. But they really they didn't have a lot of uh, they didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. You know, they had to take what they could get. Yeah, sounds like some Soboda shit. I don't know, right? But um. The Caucasus region in particular was the location of like really several significant defeats for the Red Army, at least early on. But they were always able to regroup, reform and live to fight another day. I think like a key city in that region was Zaritsyn. But fittingly, Stalin had been integral to keeping the revolutionaries organized and staving off complete collapse in the region. And, you know, we mentioned Trotsky. And to be fair, I think he does deserve credit for his work on organizing the Red Army in like many fronts, especially at this time. But I think the important thing for us to recognize here is that, like, 
yes, the Soviets from Lenin to Trotsky to Stalin to like guys like Kamenev, like they had exceptional leaders at this time, but like, how could a small group of leaders fight like a forefront assault, like all on their own, right? Like they had the buy-in of the people in the region, right? Like they had the buy-in of the masses and that was the only way they could ever fight their way out of this with the world against them. No, 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 Nick, don't you understand? It was only because they were so authoritarian. They forced everybody, and then they said, if you turn back one step, we're just going to shoot you. And they still won a war somehow, despite uh, shooting all their own people. You know, I mean, it's really not propaganda. Yeah, somehow, like, authoritarianism and whips and scourges, you know, it worked out for the Reds, but not the Whites, right? Mm, weird. Maybe they whipped them just a little less harder. I don't know. <laughs> Fucking wild. But, um... You know, it, like I said, it's it, I mentioned this um, in particular, like the Caucasus region, because it's hard to describe without like actually showing people on a map. But where the Kolchak government was based was in Omsk, a city which is further, much further west in along the Trans-Siberian Railway, like much closer to Moscow than it is to Vladivostok. Right. And it's getting like north of Kazakhstan. But like. This effort in the Caucasus was really important because essentially that white army um, led by Denikin and Wrangel down in that region was threatening to merge with like the Kolchak forces. Right. So their ability to kind of resist that and prevent those two like white army forces from merging into a much stronger force was actually really critical. And after that point, once that attempt by the white army to coalesce and get together was stopped by the red army, it kind of really marked the beginning of the end, at least for the force in Siberia, because like they couldn't retain any fighters and they, there was no help coming. Airport time. Yeah, I don't know. It's like I mean, we we're talking about Mike Duncan's take on this, you know, last time. And I don't know, man, I just it, that's why I wanted to emphasize this whole part about like the people and what the people's experiences were as told by a U.S. commander. Right. Mm. Because like he pushes like this great man shit. And like I said, Trotsky does should get credit on a lot of stuff for like some organizing work. But like who the fuck's fighting? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and why and why are they fighting? I guess I already made the joke. Like just to assume that everything was just whips and threats and all stick and no carrot. It doesn't even make sense like, to be able to organize that many people with that great of an effort. It can't be done that way. I just don't buy it, especially not at that time with like the limited technology and just the limited resources they had. And it's like there's no socialist project in history that you could even rightfully say was more authoritarian than the U.S. is currently or has always been. I mean, just look at the literal numbers of people in prison, police and military, the budgets. It's all right there in black and white. You can see it. And so even that you can see is not working in real time. Like people are not buying into this fucking project anymore. No one is buying into it on a mass scale, except for the people who are privileged enough that the material conditions are not hitting them yet. And they are like delusionally optimistic that it's going to continue that way. So I just don't buy the, the heavy handedness is the thing that keeps us all going. It has to be because you are actually giving people an improved shot at a better life. Um, yeah, it's the same kind of baseless propaganda that's like thrown around whenever you hear people being like, yeah, 90, 90% of the population of North Korea is like starving. It's like, you think they would allow that? They're just tolerating that program. Yeah. You believe that? Well, everyone in China is brainwashed. It's like, I think over a billion people, you think that would just go down? Yeah. Like, it's so fucking racist, right? Mm -hmm. But just with like the, you know, the population starving and shit like that. And like, maybe to get a little bit spicy about this time, it's like, okay. And, the, you know, because we, you know, Stalin took all the grain, right? And starved everybody. Why the fuck would he intentionally starve people after they just lost like, millions of people in world war one 
right? Why would he fucking starve people when they're trying to build a new state and they need it like all hands on deck, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? It just doesn't even make sense. And then you can actually look at the demographics and see that the population went up and shit like that over these time periods that people are talking about. It's just like, put a little, little bit more investigation in the shit. Like Mao, right? Like no investigation, no right to fucking speak. I'm glad you said that because that is really the level that I'm on now. I'm past the point of, I guess, like worrying about debunking every little nitpicky thing that people say about any socialist project past or present. And I'm just at the point where it's like, okay, the data is there. Why haven't you at least looked into it? Why haven't you at least, whoever your interlocutor is that you're talking to in this hypothetical argument that you're having with a fucking liberal, why has any liberal not looked into all the claims that are being made about everyone left of you? If you really consider yourself a progressive and you want actual change, but you think that the left is too far, because I think that's what the problem that liberals have with the left is that they know that we're right. At the end of the day, like, they just know psychologically that we are right. <laughs> And they just can't embrace it because it would threaten them materially. And so it's like, why haven't you as a liberal looked into the claims about current socialist states, seen the debunks of that, and then just kind of decided for yourself that it makes a little more sense that like, no, China isn't actually like lying about all their COVID numbers and they didn't do worse than the U.S. It's just that socialism actually does take care of people and they actually are a socialist state. I don't know. That's where I'm at now. I'm just like angry at people for not being like intellectually curious enough to just try and understand the world from a material point of view and like put even even put like reading history books aside for a second but even like doing the investigation into like you know maybe some poor segments within your community and find out what the fuck these people are saying and what they want and what they would support you know if you go out and you talk to people in like a poor community healthcare for all really resonates it's amazing yeah you know what I mean? <laughs> like just like the kind of shit that like a socialist state actually does it's just i don't know Again, so like whether it be history or just like when you're talking about what people are ready for and what they want, like maybe do a little bit of investigation before you, you know, go proclaiming what you think to be right. On the propaganda thing about, you know, all these northern Koreans are starving and why, you know, but they don't do anything because it's such an authoritarian government. But like Americans think if that was happening here, we do something about it. And it goes kind of towards the American exceptionalism conversation we always have. It's like, why do you think you would do something but other people wouldn't? Do you not think maybe it's just propaganda? But I don't know. They just uh, most liberals, don't, like you said, don't want to dig too much deeper than that. That is going on, and we're not doing anything about it yet. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> no, but it's like actively happening. Right. And people like, are just plowing it. Well, I mean, it also is like, it is a bit racist, right? Like, that kind of is a, it's a sinophobic thing to think that, like, all these Asian people are just so brainwashed, you know, or just they have the ability as a culture to be brainwashed that rugged individualist Americans that are free thinkers and everything do not somehow. It's like, it's ridiculous. It's so, I mean, it's such like an Orientalist trope to talk about like billions, millions of people being brainwashed by like this like supreme leader, you know, whether it be Kim Jong-un or Xi Jinping, whatever it is. But it's it's wildly disgusting to think yeah. that like and it extend, you know, billions of people can be mind controlled. <laughs> like, but it, extend, it extends to South America as well. I mean, they, they believe the same thing about Venezuela, right? And, and so... Yeah, you can yeah. see the brainwashed propaganda associated with all socialist movements, like especially yeah. like all the anti-Soviet propaganda and like all the media and films of like Soviet brainwashing. You know, that was a big one. But like they just established those tropes and then allow it to spread to every other country. They add in a little bit of racism and then apply it to China and North Korea and then 
you know, change it up a little bit, throw it into Cuba this time, but it's still the whole socialist brainwashing thing at the core of it. I am glad that you brought it back to Russia, the country that we're actually talking about tonight. Since we just spent like the last 10 minutes talking about China and North Korea, but like, I don't know, I think it's kind of ridiculous word that you would even suggest that Americans could be whipped up into a frenzy to believe some crazy false shit about a whole country. Like, do you think that they would really just be whipped up into a Russophobic frenzy? I don't, I don't think people in America would allow themselves, like, they wouldn't allow that to happen, okay? There's just, there's just something in the water that's different here that wouldn't allow them to be just brainwashed like that, okay? Ward, I'm going to go to the nearest Walmart. I'm just going to ask some random Americans what they feel about Russians right now and just how they feel about Russia at the moment, oh, see what God. they say. Steve and I did um, a podcast on uh, just because we should uh, the last one we did that we just released, we were shitting on like neoliberals. And so the next one we did, we're going to release um, was shitting on like MAGA, you know, and I think MAGA, the MAGA group in particular, really likes to focus on like the whole like fake news shit. Right. Like I was talking to one person yeah. and, you know, we're, you know, cause you could find a little bit of common ground for a little while, right. On like some, like how bad, like the corporate media is and all that kind of shit. And, but then you bring up something like Venezuela and it's like, oh, well they, they deserve all those sanctions. And I'm like, okay, so yeah, we're yeah, going to, yeah. we, we don't trust them about anything they have to say about what's going on at home, but we're going to trust them about a country, which you know, little to nothing about. Great. <laughs> Right, like yeah, and all over the world. So I don't know, but um, yeah. No, I mean it's obviously super relevant to what's going on in Russia today. He's like, you see, like, oh, the people in Russia, they don't know what their government is doing. How are they allowing this? Like, Motherfucker, you are people. What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> do they not own phones and have TVs? Like, do they never go outside? Like, I just love. The idea of Americans who totally know everything the government is doing with their tax dollars saying that. Yeah, and then, I mean, I don't know if we talk about it in that next episode, Nick, but I know you and I talked about it. And it's someone that I know that is of the MAGA persuasion was saying, you know, like, why aren't Russians rising up and, you know, they don't know what's going on. I'm like, well, what do you know about what's going on in Yemen? And they're like, why? What's going on in Yemen? I'm like, all right, no point talking to you anymore. It's frustrating, but... um. I don't know. So I guess we can get back into it now. That was cathartic, though. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So just to get back to that, uh, to Russia in 1919, Wilson had agreed in June of that year to, quote, assist the government of Admiral Kolchak and his associates with munitions, supplies and food. So this was like kind of like a step up from what Graves was initially tasked with. Right. And in my opinion, I mean, this is really stopping just short of ordering Graves to, you know, start killing Bolsheviks. Right. Then July of 1919 comes around and Graves was asked to accompany um, Roland Morris, who was the U.S. ambassador to Japan, to Omsk, which is that city that we talked about and was the seat of the Kolchak government at the time. Graves seemed to have the feeling in his writing at the end of the trip, he would be asked to fully embrace the Kolchak government and its causes, a prospect which he dreaded, you know, given what he'd seen. The Kolchak adherents, you know, they assured him, though, that, you know, conditions west of Vladivostok would be much better where he had spent most of his time. You know, he had spent all his time in the Far East, which was dominated by these roving bands of Cossacks on the payroll of the Japanese. But things were much better closer to the uh, seat of the supreme ruler. So anyway, with reluctance and, you know, at the insistence of the State Department, Graves ultimately departed with uh, Ambassador Morris. 
But along the way, along the journey over there, um, he made a point to kind of ascertain the feelings of the people toward the Kolchak regime in central and western Siberia. And unsurprisingly, he found things were extremely similar. And as he passed through the uh, Transbaikal region, there's this huge lake out in um, Siberia, Lake Baikal. So he passes through this like really mountainous region. And uh, he learned about the, quote, third worst character known to him in Siberia. This was the guy, the third worst after Semyonov and Kalmakov, who we talked about in episode one. Um, and this guy's name was General Rosanov. And he had seen him before in Vladivostok. But the white leadership to near to Omsk was not much different. Rosanov essentially employed the same tactics of terror to try to cow the populace. His instructions to his troops had been to shoot one person for every 10 in a village where Bol or a Bolshevik had stayed before. If the town could not or would not inform on Bolsheviks, he granted a free license to loot and pillage. And where these efforts were resisted by force, permission was granted to seize all valuables, shoot the entire adult male population of the village, and burn the remainder of the ground after the valuables had been taken. As a backup, Rosanov maintained a supply of hostages, of which 10 were murdered every time he lost a man. So, needless to say, by the time that he reached Omsk, Graves was validated many times over in his belief that Kolchak was entirely illegitimate with respect to the people. The icing on the cake was that when he actually got off the train car, a Kolchak appointee came out to meet him and basically informed him the same. This government is not very tenable. It's like the brutality and authoritarianism didn't work. Yep. I mean, and the, the terror thing, again, to tie it into the imperial stuff that we talk about all the time, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, what we've talked about, what the British did in Jamaica and then, you know, in, in, in India Especially in Jamaica, I think there were like 6,000 or 3,000 white farmers or plantation owners. And then there were something like 60 to 80,000 slaves. And, you know, the only way they could control them, they felt, was through terror. And they, the British actually wrote like a manual on how to terrorize your slaves to keep them in order. And then, you know, in India, they were, when they had the rebellion, they were like, Anyone they caught, they just fired them out of a cannon. I mean, you know, you, you just kind of, and of course, you know, all these royal families are related. So I'm, sh I'm sure they were trading stories about how they handled their, uh, you know, their working classes. So it's, I, I think all this stuff just goes to all these different imperial powers. It's shared around. For sure. On a relevant note, I would just like to real quick plug a podcast because I love doing that shit. But people who listen to the Anti-Empire Project, they've been doing a series on like the scramble for Africa. And, um, Justin Proder and I think his co-host is Dave. They just do a great job talking about these. And it, it's like exactly like you're saying. There's so many similarities. And they actually are like a lot of times using the same people. They will always send like the same guys to different places to colonize them and use the same tactics. They're sharing those. They're sharing best practices, you could say. It's like these guys know what they're doing. Well, that's the thing. Like, I mean, prior to, I mean, because that's so important to understanding like World War One and this time period in general. But, you know, obviously it resulted in, you know, the cataclysm of World War One when it was already divided and needed to be redivided because capitalism. Right. But like before Africa was actually divided up, these guys were meeting at tables in you know Brussels or wherever the fuck they were saying, like, OK, you guys are going to take care. So they basically defined what it was going to look like and how they were all going to operate. You know, and there's conflicts and stuff like that before. But prior to, you know, World War One breaking out, you had friggin the Kaiser. um, the, you know, the PM of Britain all sitting down and saying, okay, we're going to take this. You take that. Like, I mean, they'd, they'd done the same thing for Russia, right? I mean, wasn't there a meeting and was it like 1917 where they were like, okay, Britain's going to get here. France will get here. Japan's going to get here. 
Yep. So this this was all kind of in service of that as well, right? Yep. They were basically planning to balkanize it back then. So pretty cool stuff. And then, you know, we'll get into this later, but I've got some statements about, you know, what they said before the intervention and what they said after. So then we'll wrap up with that. So anyway, but getting back to Graves. So yeah, so he was he was on this trip thinking that he was ultimately asked to accompany the State Department and ambassador for kind of assessing the current state of Kolchak's forces in this region with an eye toward recommending official recognition of the administration by the U.S. government. Graves notes that he had had basically as good a working relationship with Ambassador Morris as could be expected between two individuals who had been functionally set at odds by the institutions that they were responsible to, like, you know, the State Department versus the War Department. And the general pressure from the State Department mounted upon Graves to do more. In fact, the State Department had even found an in of sorts in the War Department, citing a communication signed by Brigadier General Marlborough Churchill. This guy's an American, believe it or not. The director of mil- who is the director of military intelligence, Graves gives us yet another example of the State Department's efforts to influence him. Uh, the communication from this other shitty Churchill to the chief of staff read, quote, After a conference with the Russian division of the State Department, I believe the State Department is of the opinion that General Graves' instructions from the Secretary of War to steady any efforts at self-government or self-defense was ample authority to do everything predictable to steady the Kolchak government. He's saying, like, he's got license to do this shit and he's not doing it. Now, I think it's really important here to reiterate that Churchill was the head of the military, the division of military intelligence. And Steve, if you recall, like we talked about in our Philippines episode about the DMI and that guy, Ralph Van Diemen, and how like the division of military intelligence would essentially lay the foundation for the Office of Strategic Services and later the CIA. I did put a picture of Marlboro Churchill in the chat. If you guys want to see what this guy looks like. I mean, if you're imagining like a Chad just from the name, he just looks like a worse J.K. Simmons. I mean, if you told me if somebody's name was Cigarette Cigar <laughs> and then showed me a picture, I'm not going to be surprised. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, that looks about right. I guess if your name's Churchill, you're just, you know, born to be a cunt, so. <laughs> <laughs> He's allowed to say that. He's British, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, can I not? No, I'm just kidding. Just busted him. Um but yeah, so I just thought it was really interesting that like, you know, because again, there was that separation, at least ostensibly for a while, right, between like the War Department and the State Department. But then, you know, this, as things go on and we get to Truman, you know, those things kind of get really, it's hard to distinguish where the lines are between like, you know, the war, you know, the, the Department of War or Defense or whatever you want to call it and like the State Department, right? But this guy, Churchill, was kind of already doing shit to kind of blur those lines as part of like the DMI. They're just like an interesting trajectory to, you know, in an organization that would ultimately become the CIA. I didn't really have time to deep dive into him a lot, but just I thought an interesting point to point out and somebody that we might want to look into further, Steve, later down the line. But I'm sure we can do lots of podcasts on people named Churchill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in any case, with all this in the background, Graves Morris used the time in Omsk to analyze the reality of the situation as they attended meetings between the Allied and white officials. And frankly, from the perspective of the whites, as we said, it looked extremely bleak. General Knox, even him, like we talked about last time, he had like a huge hard on for, you know, Kolchak and the white army to begin with. But even even now, he was getting disabused of the whites' chances of success at this point. And then quote, quote from him real quick, he said, 
no form of military assistance would the British government give, and that he would not even communicate to London about the situation, as what they had been furnishing was falling into the hands of the Reds, as we said. Graves cited another report that came to him three weeks prior to their arrival at Omsk, which estimated that the population's loyalties lie 40% with the Bolsheviks, 45% with the social revolutionaries, 10% divided among other parties, and 5% only with the Kolchak administration and military. Again, makes a lot of sense when it's a class war. Nonetheless, Graves undertook a survey of sorts to kind of gauge the state of the Kolchak forces as, as they prepared a September offensive to, quote, drive the Reds into the Volga River. The muster occur- was occurring, allegedly, at a town called Petropavlovsk, which is in a, actually in Kazakhstan, uh, but directly west of Omsk. And to do this, he first traveled to uh, a village to the north of there called Ishim. From here, he expected to be conveyed to this martial site by white Russian officers. However, when he got there, he was informed that the officer in charge, of ta- in charge of this was taking a nap and would be unable to receive or assist him until the conclusion of this nap. I'm not even joking. Naturally, Graves took this as an insult and decided to go to this muster site on his own with his own car. And to really make a long story short, when Graves arrived at Petropavlovsk, the Russian officer he met with um, was supported there by only a few troops. And when Graves kind of asked him about this muster, he was informed that if they were to launch an offensive, then the U.S. commander must know more about the logistics than he did. So, it's all a giant fucking facade. So, for his part, Ambassador Morris, despite pressure from the State Department, could not bring himself to recommend unqualified recognition of the Kolchak government. Though his message would later be misconstrued by the U.S. press, Graves tells us that Morris would recommend recognition only if the United States would commit 25,000 soldiers to replace the checks and financial support to the tune of $200 million to Kolchak. And this, the Wilson government wouldn't do. And I think just it's a good time to turn back to look at Wilson for a second and what his motives were and why the State Department and War Department were set at quote-unquote cross-purposes. So in my view, and you know, maybe you guys can give me your thoughts, but this is a view that was shared by a lot of sources that I came across. I mean, I think Wilson was essentially hedging his bets a little bit, right? He didn't have the political capital or frankly, the popular will, despite all the propaganda to fully commit to like a large scale anti-Bolshevik invasion of Russia. He did, however, have enough to justify a small expeditionary force, quote, merely intended to protect the checks and the railways under instructions vague enough that they could be construed as licensing explicit support for the Kolchak government by U.S. Army. Had Graves utilized, I think, his force offensively against the Bolsheviks, supported Kolchak and been victorious, I think, you know, he would have gone home a hero, wouldn't have been criticized at all. But because he did not do this and things were falling apart, Wilson was kind of Content to wait and see and let the Japanese and Cossacks ultimately do the dirty work for Kolchak. But I think, you know, if we get to this moment and the situation's a little bit different, maybe, you know, the tide looks like it's shifting in favor of the whites. I think Wilson and Churchill could have put their thumbs on the scale, right? And I also think, like, despite, you know, what good things we've seen about Graves, if he had gotten an order from Church or from um, Wilson himself to, you know, go on the offensive with Kolchak, he would have done so despite, you know, any misgivings because he was still an army guy. You know, he was still like a loyal empire soldier. So kind of where I fall on it. But and I think the British were in the same boat in, in the sense of Lloyd George not wanting to commit to anything because I know the British soldiers that were there, there were comments like they didn't know why they were there. They thought, you know, the war's over. We should be home. There was a massive movement by the left in England called Hands Off Russia that was putting a lot of pressure on Lloyd George. 
And I think I mentioned in the last podcast, you know, for the first and second world war in England, there's really a, a really big left movement. And, and that was certainly the case here. So yeah, I mean, I don't think he wanted to commit either. So I think he's probably, I think you're right in your estimation there. Yeah, I was going to say, I completely agree. Pretty concise. It hits all the points. Like, especially after World War One, you know, trying to sell another war is hard to do with the populace, you know, especially the people that are actually going to go over there and do all the fighting. That is, I mean, one thing that, and I don't get into this a lot just because it was hard to condense this whole book into, you know, a coherent, you know, maybe two or three hour podcast. But, you know, to Steve's point about the British troops, I mean, the American troops were feeling the same way. Like they didn't know, a lot of them didn't know why they were over there, you know, and like they weren't, they weren't willing to go. They, they didn't want to fight like a large scale war, at least from a lot of the descriptions that Graves give. They didn't want to go fight a war against fucking Russians. You know, I mean, they didn't want to go fight the Red Army. They really didn't even, even have a good grasp of what like Bolshevism was, you know. Anyway, getting back to it, I think it's also worth noting that I said Morris indicated troops would be needed to replace the Czechs. Because at this time, the Czech Legion, they were actually breaking with the whites. General Gaida, who, as a reminder, was a commander of the Legion, noting after his own inspection of the situation in Omsk that, quote, the Kolchak government cannot possibly stand, and if the Allies support him, they will make the greatest mistake in history. It is a hypocritical government which attempts to convince the peasants that their cause is being fostered and yet looks for the psychological moment to restore monarchy. Kolchak has surrounded himself with the old regime officers whose only salvation for future existence depends on restoration of the monarchy, end quote. In any case, recognition was not forthcoming, as we said, and Graves moved back to Vladivostok as the facade of the Siberian White Army strength crumbled before him. At the end of this section of his account, Graves describes the continued atrocities of the whites again and again, give us an example of murderous reaction against striking railway workers in the white-controlled sectors, and Semyonov butchering an entire village, women and children included. He also kind of notes with uh, anguish almost, I would say, if I can inject that into him, that the uh, people of the U.S. of A. were completely ignorant of the brutality the Russian peasantry faced. He seems to beg the question, how could a democracy support their government being complicit in such atrocities? I, I, just, I just made a note there that they, that might be a bit naive if we look at the history following this, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, his account then turns back to focusing on the Japanese and the Cossacks um, in September in eastern Siberia. And things had started to break down back in Vladivostok as well between the Allied kind of coalition. In fact, Graves went back to a situation in which a U.S. corporal had been arrested and beaten by Cossacks, an act which he claimed was engineered by the Japanese. The corporal was ultimately returned, but tensions were mounting and Graves came under the impression of that the Cossacks and the Japanese were beginning to look to kind of engineer hostilities, likely out of frustration that the, at the perceived lack of anti-Bolshevik action by the Americans. There, of course, had been anti-Bolshevik action throughout as Americans had indeed engaged Bolsheviks in very small, small scale skirmishes along the railway under the guise of, quote, protecting it. But the Japanese and the Cossacks almost assuredly wanted more, and Graves began to guard against anti-American Cossack aggression. And I think this tension was kind of highlighted by an arms deal gone bad um, in September of 1919. Under the agreement that came back in June that we talked about, in which Wilson had basically agreed that it was permissible to provide munitions to Kolchak, the whites had purchased one million gold. Well, what, I don't know what that means in dollars, but that's how he wrote it. Um, one million gold worth of rifles that were beginning to be shipped in via U.S. rail cars on the Trans-Siberian Railway. However, citing brewing tensions between the agents of Kolchak and the U.S. forces, Graves actually held up the deliveries. 
He writes, quote, on account of anti-American activities of Kolchak agents here, I have refused to take the gold and refused to give up the rifles. Mr. Morris here approved this measure. So predictably, this caused quite a stir from papers sympathetic to and or run by the whites in Vladivostok to the mainstream media back at home. Graves was being denounced everywhere. He was later to find out that segments of the U.S. press were reporting that the Kolchak or that the State Department itself had indicted him as interfering in operations that were above his pay grade. Despite all of the blowback, Graves remained steadfast that if the rifles had gotten to Kolchak or intercepted by his agents like Semyonov or Kalmakov, they would have been utilized by the Cossacks against American troops. He also lamented that the American people never knew the reality of the situation on the ground and knew that if they did, that they would not, that they would have supported his action in preventing the rifles from reaching the, the uh, Cossacks. So, I don't know. Again, it's just another instance of propaganda. But another interesting bit was the type of information that the State Department decided to keep from the public back home entirely. So, like, in that one, they twisted a narrative to kind of fit a thing. In this next example, they just completely excluded it. And this was because the White Army, led by a Cossack named Anankov, whose insignia was a skull and crossbones, led a pogrom in Ekaterinburg, which saw the slaughter of 3,500 Jews. And this was done, according to the whites, to give them, them being the Jews, something to think about, you know, as the, presumably as like, you know, the Bolsheviks are rising. But Consul General Harris reported back to Washington that the reports of this pogrom were false in the aftermath of it. And Graves noted with some disgust that not even the czarist went as far as the scumbag in the State Department as to totally deny the atrocity. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's the left that's uh, anti-Semitic, right? Couldn't have yeah. happened. Just wild to me because they can take that, that arms transfer and spin it against Graves. But then when it's like something that's so objectively evil and disgusting, they, they just block the narrative entirely. It just makes you think, right? So anyway, he gives um, several more instances of the Japanese and the Cossacks attempting to engineer hostilities. But by October 16th, he's, he was reporting back to Washington that there was no longer any danger of broad-based anti-American action by the Cossacks. He also reiterates that the Kolchak government had really begun to disintegrate. Quote, the Kolchak government had never carried out the intent of the inter-allied railway railroad agreement. And it was always a military road controlled and operated by the white Russian military officials. The guarding of such a one-sided railroad caused a great deal of resentment against the United States by the Democratic class. He also cited an intelligence report which stated the Kolchak government was being referred to by the locals as the Knox government. So the Russian people had completely and totally seen through the farce. The Allies weren't here to steady self-government and provide aid. They were imperialist pigs intent on controlling the situation to their benefit. So just to go back to the Czechs real quick. The Czechs, again, had broken with Kolchak in August of 1919, but they still had a significant presence up and down the railway as they still had not been entirely evacuated. Initially starting as an enemy of the Bolsheviks, the Czechs became, if not a friend of the Red Army, at least a, fo a force opposed to monarchism. So in November of 1919, they kind of announced their position on the situation publicly. They had been ready to protect the railway, but no longer could support a situation which allowed the whites to continue activities, quote, contrary to the Legion's aspirations in the cause of humanity and justice. We have become, in spite of ourselves, accomplices to a crime, end quote. I know I'm like repeating myself a lot. I just want to try to demonstrate like just how bad things are getting from the perspective of the white army. So, and while the vast majority of the Legion wanted to move on out of Siberia without being party to any more bloodshed or interference, a small segment led by General Gaida 
had actually gotten linked up with a group of social revolutionaries in Siberia and plotted a coup to overthrow General Rosanov, who was officially leading the Kolchak forces in eastern Siberia at the time. The plot was ill-fated and ultimately failed, but it served to demonstrate the rapidity at which the whites were not only shedding allies, but creating enemies. Um, and around the same time as the Czechs' announcement, Graves noted that he received a report claiming that, quote, 97% of the people in Vladivostok were anti-Kolchak. And as such, the Allied representatives here began to prepare for like a new political orientation with respect to the situation that was inevitably going to change. So despite all that, um, the U.S. appeared to be the last country, according to Graves, to give up on Kolchak officially. As late as December 7th of 1919, the Secretary of State let it be known that the U.S. still desired that Kolchak lead any government formation in Siberia. Unfortunately for the U.S. imperialists, this was soon to become an impossibility. In January of 1920, Kolchak was turned over to the social revolutionaries by the Czechs. So this group of Czechs had actually been transporting Kolchak along the railway when they were confronted by this group of SRs. And the Czechs really had no desire to spill blood for Kolchak, so they turned him over without much incident. So according to Graves, Kolchak was tried by a military court by the Bolsheviks. He was apparently turned over to the Bolsheviks by the SRs and shot on February 7th, 1920. So, you know, Graves indicates that, you know, they had this military trial. One source I found indicated that he was shot without trial by the Bolsheviks at the direct order of Lenin. Based. And while, yeah, as I say, and like, I do like the idea of Lenin personally ordering the, the scumbag's execution, but I think it's like kind of telling that like Graves notes that they went through like a process here. You know, I mean, I think his fate was kind of sealed, but he, he said, hey, they did this military court and they found him. They went through this process. It wasn't like, you know, Lenin just coming down and like personally executing him or like Stalin pulling out his big spoon and bludgeoning him to death, you know, like. I love the big spoon. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually in favor of show trials, as long as you're just putting fascists on show trial. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with a kangaroo court. Just fucking yeah. put them against the wall. Like, but that's not even that's what cool. they did. Yeah. They were actually more fair than that. Right. Yeah, I mean, honestly, more than I would have given this motherfucker. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it's just interesting because you get this report from him, and then, you know, you just find a bunch of shit online. It's like, I'm inclined to believe that they went through processes because if you actually dive into it, there's a lot to indicate that, you know, despite all the propaganda, there are systems and things like that set up by the Reds, even in times of crisis, to address these situations in like a functional manner, what we would consider to be like a functional manner, right? So, mm. In any case, an army of 100,000 Reds was gaining ground in Siberia quickly, um, and they were fully armed and equipped courtesy of the British Army. I have little doubt, though Graves doesn't mention it. You know, we talked about that rifle exchange. Um, I'm going to guess that many of these peasants were also carrying American-made rifles, right? But I don't, think he wanted to, I don't think he wanted to throw that out there. But, you know, the Red Army at this point is a seasoned and numerous force. You know, we're talking about 1920. They've had two years now to kind of get it together. And they're starting to win at this point. And they're at this point able to kind of demand fair treatment by, by the foreign interventionists, and they refuse to, you know, submit to the dictates of the inter-allied railway agreement. The cumulative forces rising against the whites could not even be characterized entirely as Bolsheviks, as we said. On December 27th of 1919, Graves cabled back to the War Department that in order to prevent the death of American troops, they would have to abandon parts of the railway they were guarding, or they would find themselves fighting alongside Kalmykov, Rosanov and Semyonov against the Russians, who, quote, claim that they are trying to establish a representative government in the East. 
And this cable came back to Washington after an anti-Kolchak leader approached one major Mulaski and informed him that by, quote, guarding this railway, you are helping the reactionary crowd and delaying the final settlement of the final settlement of our difficulties. This this uh, this colonel had to prevent any more war material from reaching the whites. And, you know, he didn't want to confront, actually engage in battle with the Americans. But if they stood in his way, they were going to do that. And Graves kind of responded with, well, yeah, who can blame them at this point? So by late January of 1920, as Kolchak was approaching his execution, General Rosanoff was driven from power and the white army in Siberia was reduced to, you know, small bands of roving Cossacks. The Bolsheviks were not actually even in a position to assume control of the entirety of Siberia as fighting still raged in the Caucasus and Ukraine. And in the void left by the whites, a local administration formed in Vladivostok in the style of the Zemsvos. These were like the local governance bodies that first appeared in Russia following the uh, liberal reforms of Tsar Alexander II back in the 1860s, right? So like this void's left by this reactionaries and the people kind of get together and they say, hey, like, let's, you know, there's nothing here. Let's set up this like kind of local council to figure shit out in the meantime, right? So Graves notes that for the two months he had remaining in Russia, the Zemstvo officials um, exhibited remarkable fairness in dealing with everyone, Russians and foreign interventionists alike, despite the likes of that asshole Consul General Harris refusing to even work with them. He notes that he was incredulous that he received newspaper reports, and he doesn't specify where they come from. I don't know if they're local um, Russian newspapers or U.S. newspapers, but essentially these newspapers are reporting that the Bolsheviks had the streets of Vladivostok flowing with blood. But this guy's here and he's saying, this is the best shit's been since, since I got here because the whites are gone, you know? And, you know, so for one, the Bolsheviks were not even in Vladivostok. And for another, you know, the whites had been responsible for all this death and misery. And Graves also remarked that it was odd that, you know, guys like Harris, you know, who were there essentially to establish or, or steady any efforts at self-government um, weren't willing to assist this effort at self-government. Kind of just gives away the game for about the 100th time. <laughs> in any case, so the writing's on the wall for the imperialists, and just as it was for the White Army, it was time to tuck tail and return home. And in April of 1920, Graves boarded a ship with the last echelon of American troops and went back to the States. And I wasn't sure of like kind of the best way to wrap this one up, but I think it would be kind of good to just do a quick roundup on some of like the key players in the intervention. So Graves goes home, basically an enemy of the State Department. Um, most of his superiors in the War Department actually kind of commended his ability to comply with his original orders despite serious adversity. The State Department, if we haven't made this abundantly clear, did not see it that way. He had essentially been put on blast by Marlboro Churchill for not assisting Kolchak and eventually would find himself being tailed and monitored by agents of the State Department at public events when back at home. Of the intervention, in retrospect, he would write, quote, I doubt if any unbiased person would ever hold that the United States did not interfere in the internal affairs of Russia. By this interference, the United States helped bolster up by its military forces a monarchistically inclined and unpopular government of which the great mass of the people did not approve. The United States gained by this act the resentment of more than 90% of the people of Siberia. So again, you know, it's something that we talked about off the top in part one. It's like, this shit matters so much because... The Russian people, like their impression of the U.S. was, you know, these guys tried to invade us, right? <laughs> like, I mean, this is going to color a populist's perspective on it, right? And he says 90% of the people were like, fuck these guys. Like, you were over here when you shouldn't have been. So, perfectly understandable. 
feel like Ukrainians, man. They're just so oppressed by Russia right now, man. They probably just feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so much resentment. <laughs> right. But Winston Churchill summed up the British perspective later in the House of Commons in like an address, and he said, quote, the British government had called the Kolchak government into being for our own aid at a time when necessity demanded it. So he just kind of put it right out there for everybody. And I, I thought this was interesting to read what their initially announced justification for intervention was. And that was, quote, we are coming as friends to help you save yourself from dismemberment and destruction at the hands of Germany, which is trying to enslave your people and use the great resources of your country to its own ends. We wish solemnly to assure you that we shall not retain one foot of your territory. The destinies of Russia are in the hands of the Russian people. It is for them and them alone to decide their forms of government and to find a solution for their social problem. I mean, sadly, before Google, you might buy that. You might believe it. It was. It's kind of a side topic because so we can talk about this first. But did you read about what happened to that Knox afterwards? No, I didn't. I was hoping you would, though. Yeah, like I mean, like every good imperialist, he wrote two books and became a member of parliament for twenty years. God damn it! Every time. <laughs> yep. Every fucking time. <laughs> Glad that these kind of things don't happen anymore. The Japanese, for their part, remained in Siberia for some time after the Americans departed having issued kind of their own hypocritical statement prior to um, the actions of the Japanese as described by Graves, like made it very clear that they were beginning to seek the right opportunity to flex their own imperial might, you know, which would go on to devastate so many in Korea, China, and the rest of East and Southeast Asia in the years to come. Right. Wilson for his part was approaching the last year of his term and was busy trying to form the league of nations, having issued his 14 point speech back in 1918. How many points? 14. Weird. Wilson, you say? Yeah. <laughs> no, not racist. Was it 14 words as well, I assume? Mm. Shit. But, you know, central to that whole thing was the right of nations to self-determination, right? What nations exactly? Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, so, like, when we square with these events, like, it's just the height of fucking hypocrisy, right? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, Ho Chi Minh would cite this. He would get burned by this shit as well, like, later on down the line. It's just... Yeah, who are we talking about when we talk about when we square it with all this? And then the last guy we'll touch on was that Semyonov. Um, and much to the chagrin of Graves, he was actually able to secure passage to America in 1922, um, presumably fleeing the wrath of the Red Army, which by that time was actually making its way to Vladivostok. He would be granted safety for some time, but he was soon faced with accusations that he had murdered, discharged American troops in Vladivostok before he left. So, you know, facing that in trial in America, he fled to Manchuria, where he was sustained by the support of the Japanese, but not even he could flee the Soviets forever. This is such a fucking cool part. In September of 1945, during the Soviet-aided liberation of Manchuria, Red Army paratroopers captured this pig and brought him back to Moscow for trial and ultimately execution. Legends say that Stalin dusted off his execution spoon and bludgeoned the cost of death personally. <laughs> yeah, I just had his eyes with it here. <laughs> I just thought it was so cool that, after, like, you know, this guy probably thinks he's safe for like 20 years and these fucking Red Army paratroopers come in and take him back to Moscow. Don't you so, love that shit? That's basically, it's so fucking cool. Ah, uh, justice. Sweet justice. Yeah. So, and just the last point I wanted to make before we can just open it up is that, like, you know, the Soviets would go on to completely destroy the White Army and establish the USSR officially in December of 1922. And we'd go on to support and inspire anti-imperialist and decolonial movements in the years to come. Unfortunately for the people of the USSR, this was not to be the last imperialist transgression that they would face. 
Soon it would be Hitler and the Nazis and later the U.S. and the rest of their imperial creatures during the Cold War after their outright betrayal of the Soviet people. So I ask anyone listening to consider with awe what they accomplished given the state of siege imposed upon them from day one. That's the U.S. intervention in uh, Russia. U.S. and allied intervention. Nope. I don't know. I got a couple of things that we could talk about. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I, um, I think I'm actually looking at the notes again, and I see what your first question is. And I think that's actually a really good starting point. It's like, what is the final verdict on Graves? It's like, because it's like, this guy's just a fucking dope. If he doesn't understand like what the actual influences are at work here, you know, versus what he's being told on the face of it. It's like any teenager who works in retail can tell the difference between what their managers are saying and then how things are actually going. Like, you know, when you get the prep talk, it's like everybody can recognize the fake language, bro. That's like, that's why we all hate being at work because you have to be fake all the time. Like, Grace, like, pick up on it, bro. Like, you, you got this. And then, so he does get it. And he, I think he gets, like, the, the heinousness of what they wanted to do. He refuses to do it. Just his material conditions led him to not be an imperialist lapdog as much as he could have been. He almost did some... He kind of, like, in his way, resisted the imperialist effort by just kind of being inept at it and just, like, not doing the, the shit that they really wanted him to do. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's good that he did it. I think it's funny, the uh, Mike making the work analogy, because, like, great, that's Grace's work. I think he was right. working. And so just seeing the propaganda and it's, like, it's kind of being a dope, just not seeing through it, you know what I mean? regardless of people's political ideologies, they sometimes can be correct on things. Like he can observe situations happening and objectively say like, Hey, this shit's fucked up. Like what these guys are doing over here is wrong. Right. Like I talking to conservatives nowadays about things in Ukraine and they're like, you just fucked up. We're arming neo-Nazis over there. And I'm like, yeah, how do wait, how do you, how did you figure that one out? It's like, yeah. it's fake news, bro. And I'm like, Oh, you fucking, that one actually fucking is it right this time. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, the whole thing about the Republican Party saying anything close to what actual anti-imperialists are saying about the whole Ukraine conflict is because they are in the minority, they're out of power, and can't actually act on those sentiments in any way. So right. they can take an actual populist and legitimate good stance for all the wrong reasons, knowing that were they in power, they would be funding the military just as much as Democrats are now. So it's like... Yeah, if Maggot yeah. Daddy said this is all fake news, it would be fucking fake news, right? It's only because Biden, Biden's in there. But Democrats would also cynically be saying that Republicans are arming neo-Nazis in Ukraine, look, they're fascists all over the place. And they'd be right to do it, but they also, you know, we see what they are doing. But like, Graves kind of ends up as a almost unwitting anti-imperialist. And so, you know, good on him for that, but like, I think it speaks more to, like, less to his character and more to just conditions themselves the immortal science. Yeah, no, and I mean, I agree with everything you guys said about him. You know, like I said, one of the, I think I said this in part one, but like one of the interesting things was that I actually found the write-up on Marxist.org. So like it's, you know, it's good to demonstrate. It's clearly, you know, good to demonstrate the material conditions from like an American general perspective. Because he didn't quit. He still kept taking the paychecks. Like. Right, right. And that's the thing. And like, that's why my whole thing comes back to why like I think he, you know, was like a decent human being. But at the end of the day, like we're talking about what, you know, who was paying him, if Wilson came and said, you know, start fucking up Bolsheviks, he would have done it. No matter how much, like, no matter how much he might have felt bad about it. Yeah, if they really put the boot on him. Mm -hmm. Like, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have deserted, you know? So, I don't know. But it was interesting because, you know, it gave, it gave us this story 
from a guy who's ideologically committed to America and like its institutions. And he was saying this was this was pretty fucked up. The, the situation that we ended up supporting here, you know, so, I don't know. But yeah, that's kind of why I end up on him as well. And I think just another example of like a way to strip through the propaganda and like, you know, if you can look at something that you think you understand just kind of from passive absorption through the years about like 1918 and the situation in Russia. And you just, I think a lot of people probably just have this broad sense that like, oh, you know, both sides bad kind of shit, like we touched on last time as well. But like, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe if, 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 if we can disabuse somebody with the account from an American general on why your understanding of this is bullshit, maybe, maybe somebody that listens starts like questioning other shit. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, I was, I, I was having a conversation with, I guess, a couple of liberals the other night, and they were talking about, we were talking about a bunch of different shit, but like we were talking about schools at one point and like, what should kids learn? And one of them said like, well, what's the point of learning anything about World War I? And I think their criticism was more about how, I guess, you know, when her daughter learned, it was like, this battle happened on this day and this battle happened on this day. And I was like, well, I mean, the point of learning about it is like you learn about like this, the Russian Revolution and, and what that led to. And I mean, again, you're going to get a skewed perspective in, at a U.S. school or a British school. But like if you get an interest and you can do your own research, you can learn a lot about, you know, why the world is where it is now, you know, and then you can learn about the rise of fascism and, and how, you know, a, a government that doesn't do anything like, you know, and, and just kind of appeases these fanatics can lead to the rise of Hitler. And you can draw parallels to what's happening in the U.S. now and what's happening in a lot of Western Europe with the rise of the right. But I think if you look at things from like a critical view, you, you get more of that, you know, not just, as you said, learning dates or anything, but, you know, and I think things like that probably help that. And if, if you get somebody young or someone interested listening to this and makes them do their own research, I think that's definitely helpful. Yeah, I think, uh, Nick, you were kind of getting at that point. I don't know if you actually used the word wedge, but you, it, it can be like if you, like you were saying, this account from an American general himself <laughs> describing the situation, showing that the traditional accepted narrative is bullshit. It's like it can be a way to sort of open the door to understanding things in a different way just understanding how much they're being lied yeah god i fucking hope somebody gets that out of this because i spent way too many hours reading this fucking thing well no i mean that's the whole thing with like <laughs> nobody's gonna like listen to any one episode of either right. of those and just be like oh fucking fuck democrats i'm a marxist now like yeah you know fuck with no but like, just the slow yeah the slow hammering slow. right i might have said it before but i think we're all kind of doing this for the next three years just for for ourselves while the lives are brunch until they really get excited around election time and then they'll they'll start getting political again i don't know man i hope they're getting i i think i said i was talking to some people in your discord the other day and it's just some people are starting to like question shit just a little bit like they're still obviously pretty far off like i was saying like they're still screaming about fucking bernie in 2016 and Oh, mm -hmm. that was the, that's, that's oh the God. issue with everything we're facing ah, today. Dude, I cannot believe that that is actually a narrative. Like, Holy fuck. What was that? What was that MSNBC thing? I, I don't know if you sent it to me, Nick, or I sent it to you about like, she was screaming that you didn't vote hard enough in 2016. And that's why we're in the situation we're in now. Can you imagine the situation we'd be in if they hadn't rigged it both times and we just had had Bernie in 2016? <laughs> like, but you know, I, I say that, I think I even said it again recently in another episode, but it's like, they would have absolutely just done they would have just, oh my God, you, you think Biden can't get anything done? Oh, yeah. yeah. 
I don't know, man. It's just Steve and I were talking about this the other day too. It's just wild to me that like, you know, a la Bernie, they wouldn't even grant the concession of like a Bernie presidency or, you know, even Medicare for all. Like, again, this is going to be a repeat in our podcast, but I want to see what you guys think about it. Like, I think that, you know, obviously the left is still pretty nascent and growing, kind of finding its way. But, uh, you know, the concessions have always been to kind of neuter like any like left movement. Right. So it's just like in, in my mind, like they could if they gave Medicare for all right now, they'd cut a lot of the radical like the, the grow, like the, the bubblings of a radical movement. They'd fucking cut its feet, feet out from under it. Right. Like, I think yeah. we would all be in like, oh, this is not and this is great, but this is not enough. You know what I mean? We need to see, keep agitating. But there's a lot of people that they could, I guess, just, you know, again, get back to brunch if they gra- granted a concession like M4A, you know, and it's just wild to me that they won't even do that at this point. You know, like they can't even like, like just something, dude. They can't, dude. They can't do it. They literally, I think that they literally cannot do it. Like the, even if the political will were there, it's like, I just imagine a whole bunch of Democrats standing around saying to themselves, I don't understand why both parties are acting in their own class interests instead of what they keep saying that they want to do for me. Like, it's like, bro, how do you live your whole life repeating that pattern and not understand the, the structure at work there? Like, you have to get it after a certain point, and they literally cannot give you anything because it's not... Like, if, even if, if every single Democrat was AOC and Bernie, they still cannot get it done because the machine prevents that from happening. The money in the machine prevents that from happening, and that is just... To, to think that it is unnatural that it is like not real capitalism or not real u.s government like you're delusional you have to understand that that is the world that you're living in and then proceed from that point uh, i saw a perfect tweet that was like when people are like whenever you try to criticize the u.s and capitalism they're like well this is the u.s is a real capitalism and it's like they compare it to like oh you don't have you don't have cancer you have stage four cancer mm-hmm. yeah yeah this is this is a crony. This is like the corporatist stage. It's like, yeah, yeah this exactly. is just this is just the advanced <laughs> stage, right? All right, bro. Yeah. This was talked about like, yeah, exactly. Like, we knew we on the left, us Marxists, we know like this is capitalist like endpoint. Like it, this is where it's going to develop to. And it's only going to get shittier from here. But like they just want to pretend as if it's, it's not even the same thing. I've got it, you guys. I've got the. uh Red anon, like whatever the like far left version of QAnon is that turns everybody into like unwitting communists. Like QAnon <laughs> has just kind of whipped everyone into fascism. It's that both Democrats and Republicans are all secret communists, and they are purposely making everything worse so that China and Russia take over the world. That's the conspiracy. That's the real deep state. That's the real deep state. <laughs> Man, I want to do I want to do an episode eventually on like defining what the deep state is, right? Because the deep state exists, right? Not in the way that the Q people, but like it's the fucking it's the fucking arm of imperialism, right? Like it's the, yeah, it exists it's, and it's anti-communist. It's not right. To... <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it's massive military industrial like corporations like Northrop Grumman and Boeing and Raytheon and L three Communications, like those motherfuckers and yeah. like all these NGOs and think tanks that are paid for and funded by them and like sanctioned by the U S government and like state department. It's all those motherfuckers. They exist. It's not some like anomalous blob that can't be defined. It's 
these motherfuckers have like names and addresses like they exist when you were talking about nick when all these just representatives from different governments in different countries are sitting in rooms drawing lines on maps and dividing up territories it's like still the same all the conspiracies that you guys think are going on are just happening in boardrooms that are officially sanctioned and you're going along with it and you're paying these people to dominate you like you love it you little sub I usually quote Parenti like every other episode or something like that. There's that one speech he's given and he's talking about conspiracy, like these oddball conspiracy theories. And he's like, and of course they ask, yeah, do, do they meet in rooms, right? What do they meet in rooms, these people? And he's like, of course they meet in rooms. Where the hell do you think they're meeting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, Where else would they meet? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's all right. Funny. I know he's the best. But, um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, what all this has to do with this is that, I guess, at the end of the day, it's like, this is just an early indicator of where this was all going, and it was shit that Lennon had already figured out in terms of how it was all going to go. So, like, why read theory and why read history? It's because smarter people than us have already fucking figured it out a long time. We don't need to reinvent the wheel, you know? Yeah. I just love the hubris of Americans. Just like, yeah, I haven't read any history. I haven't read any political theory. I haven't read anything at all. I've just passively absorbed headlines and, you know, just as I'm reading online. And I have my own beliefs that don't fit anywhere on the political spectrum because I'm not quite a fully aligned with the Democrats or Republicans. I'm just like my own political island. I'm an independent thinker. Bro, we just need to get the money out of politics, bro. Taxation is theft. And they like have a smirk about it. Like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, for that matter, I'm not even like as like hubristic to say that like the shit that I'm putting out there is like necessarily super original, right? Like, you know, we're all like kind of bouncing ideas off of each other one way or the other through podcasts and the shit we read. But like, I don't know. I, I think I'm right. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, like people I like try to like radicalize. I tell them all the time. I'm like, like, I'm not like just trying to like come up with shit or like try to lie to you. Like, I didn't arrive at my political beliefs out of nowhere. Like, I spent a lot of time reading shit and getting into like the actual history and the facts and like everything and the minutiae of all of this just to arrive to where I'm at. Like, I, these aren't my thoughts. Like, I'm not at like none of this is off the top of my head. Like, when you ask me, like, oh, what would be your like ideal society it's like i don't fucking have it because like i've read so many versions like so many things it's like i could pull aspects from here and here and here and like here's some historical examples i prefer but like here's some that actually worked a little bit better like it's not original though it's not mine right i don't try to pass it off as anything that like this is warts you know yeah. Also, why is it important what your ideal society would be? Like, who the fuck are you? Like, yeah, who am I? People who are like widely recognized as having good ideas about these kind of things. Also, different things work in different places, of course, for different people. And that has to be taken into account and is taken into account in Marxism. It's like, so all these questions have been answered. And it's like, people just haven't really looked. And that's, I am really just frustrated at the lack of intellectual curiosity of people who claim to want to find solutions for political and systemic problems. It's like you should be looking to past examples. You should be looking to current examples. And the fact that you're not, or you're just kind of taking your government and media's word about these things. And like you have like takes on things that you've never really researched. It's incredibly frustrating to me. And I just, yeah. yeah I, but I also completely understand it because dude, the day in and day out of capitalism, like 
you're asking people to do some deep research. Like I spent a lot of time fucking reading to get to where I'm at. Yeah. And like a lot of like that's why we could do these podcasts so we could be like, hey, here's something digestible real quick. Yeah. Like, Take an hour. Understand it. Yeah. Like I'm not asking you to read like cat all three volumes of Capital, but like listen to these four dudes kind of like drunkenly talk about this thing real quick. You might like it. Yeah. Yeah. You know that's I mean? more like, something. Yeah, that's why people spend so much time on like Facebook and social media apps just to like drown out the noise of just existence of capitalism. Like they don't want complex analysis of their socioeconomic existence. Like they just want to like turn their brains off whenever they get home after working two shifts and feeding the family. Yeah. No, so, it's like, a fucking I, I understand down. the frustration. Like I deal with it all the time trying to radicalize people, but like I just have to remember like some people just like it's hard. I get yeah. it. No, it's not on the radar. You know, it's just and it can't be on the radar for everybody. So you, you do have to have that like level of sympathy, you know. It's just the people that I think piss me off the most are the ones that are going to go out and ardently, you know, argue against you and like double down on that shit, right? Like there's Absolutely. a lot of people out there. I'm thinking of neoliberals here when I'm talking. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Like, you know, your average like working class you know, and a lot of these like working class people, you know, they might start in a, in a position that you might think would be like somewhat reactionary and shit like that. But when you actually start talking about shit and like talking to people like, you know, with respect and like being like a normal fucking person, they're actually pretty receptive to listening to shit. But like the other side of that is like, you know, when you try to present somebody with evidence of like something that you've put time into and like researching and things like that, and they just double down on this position. And it's just like, again, to, we're, we're talking about like material conditions and understanding how socialism has arisen um in various places throughout history and you know why parties did what they did and you know even when we're talking from the framework of like trying to be critical you know it's like you can't really understand the formation of the ussr without having some understanding of the history that we're talking about tonight right like (laughs) like how that government went was informed by the fact that they were you know facing a fucking reactionary army buoyed by all the strongest imperialist powers in the world against them right so like you know, you hear about like war communism and shit like that. And like, it's often thrown against like Stalin as like a criticism. It's like, well, what the fuck were they supposed to do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And war communism also gets like ignored by like a lot of like Marxists. It's being a phase that's going to happen. Like, we're going to have to deal with that. Like, yeah. and it's going to suck. Like, a, like crimes will happen because war is fucking hell. It's a terrible thing. And like, People ask, like, oh, why were the, there even gulags or, like, the detention camps? And it's like, because how many trials can you actually hold in the middle of a war? Logis- how many is logistically possible? Like, mm-hmm. you're going to have some delay in trials. Like, you're going to have some speedy trials. Like, because you're dealing with bigger issues at hand, you know? You're still trying to see state power. Stalin can only execute so many people in a day. Yeah. Hot take... <laughs> Conditions in the gulag were about similar to being a poor person in America. Yeah. Like they were given not the best, but not the worst housing and food. And they worked and they weren't like tortured. They were just like in prison. They just like, and then they were like let out after 10 years max. Yeah. I'd argue it's slightly better because who's like the biggest like advocate against gulag social needs in. And he got his fucking cancer cured in the gulag. Yeah. They had medical care. Good luck in America, bro. Yeah, good luck in that America. So, like, maybe sign me up for the gulag. <laughs> just sucks here, bro. Honestly, it would be better than like Sing Sing or some shit like that. Fuck. 
You know? I would love it if they send me like a North Korean gulag and then like I just start talking to them, like figuring out, I don't know, I guess figuring out Korean <laughs> just by immersion and then telling them I love communism. And they're like, oh, actually, you can just come out. Like, <laughs> just come chill. Yeah, they also have you start starring in their movies as like the typical American bad guy. I'm like, oh, I could just, we got to start writing some like anti American propaganda that we would say in front of cameras and in, in the DPRK, like, Abandon your heathenist ways. Like, abandon your pop stars and your billionaire idols. He must have a gun to his head, and they must be threatening to kill him. <laughs> no, I mean, like, no, I'm, I'm loving it now. <laughs> I get to say this on TV. <laughs> what was his uh, screen name? There was that uh, uh, U.S. war. Uh, uh, U.S. Uh, he was in the army, and he defected to the DPRK after Korea became a movie star. Really, I didn't know about that yeah. guy. I knew about the guy who just. Oh no, that's that's basically movie. what I'm, that's what I'm referencing is like there's a after the Korean War, a U.S. Army soldier defected to the DPRK and um, he became like a film star. Later became like a, a school teacher, and he played like the typical American bad guy in in like Korean films. Those oh, awesome. we got to do it. Like yeah. Oh, here's it. Here it is. Uh, his screen name was, yeah, his screen name was Arthur Cockstud. That was his, the super typical American name <laughs> that they picked for him. No way. I swear. Look it up. I'm, I'm Googling it right now. But... You can look up just Arthur Cockstud. And it's oh, okay, so, yeah, over. James Joseph Dresnick. Like, so the fact that, this is what I'm saying, Ward, like, Ward, we gotta go, like, tomorrow. Like, we are so much better looking than this guy. We will Oh, him. yeah. We... We have our lives cut out for us, man. Mm-hmm. We'll do well. But yeah. Movie stars of the Hermit Kingdom. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> yeah. <I'm gonna> go. <laughs> what, 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 would our, uh, what would our bad guy names be? Oh, goodness. So this has to be like, like the, you know, like the online, like what's your porn name, right? Like oh, what, month yes. you, what month were you born in? So like what's your Korean like white guy movie star name? Yeah. DPRK oh god, that'd be name. such a good that would be such a good meme to make. Yeah. Like so have the last name born like, in. What does your what does your last name start with, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I don't actually have anything. If Sterling were here, he would have some really funny examples, but I got fucking nothing. Yeah, now I can't think. I'm not clever, but I don't know. That's probably as good a place as any to wrap it up. <laughs> what a fucking anticlimactic. <laughs> Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate you all joining us. Yeah, thank you. Of course. Yeah, this is great. Good. No, I'm glad. Yeah, I assume this will be going on our feed. So if anybody has not already, please subscribe to the Intervention Pod because you definitely should. Yeah, and I'll put it on, on ours as well. And, uh, you know, with all your links and everything. But as I said last time, if you're not listening to Turn Leftist, please, please do so. Yeah, we're pretty good sometimes. <laughs> you guys are okay. awesome. All right, man. See y'all. Thanks for uh, thanks, guys. thanks for joining us tonight. Appreciate Later, it, guys.